In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic. All right, folks, we are back. Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host, Vincent Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network. You could find us here every Monday at 2 p.m. East Coast time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's prn.fm. Well, it's good to be back in the Sheridan Beach studios away from Standing Rock. It was a good event. I spoke to folks. There was a lot of people who shared the podcast. I even received a couple of emails from people who shot the podcast out to their email lists, and plenty of people have emailed me and wanted to talk about what happened in Standing Rock and what my perspective was. And Anyway, I'm sitting here today back in northwest Indiana, back in the Great Lakes region. For those of you who live out here, oh shit, yes, it was quite a snowstorm for the last uh, few days here. So things have been moving slow. It's actually one of the reasons why I love doing radio and one of the reasons why I love, in some ways, the wintertime. It forces everyone to slow down. And I like going through the seasons because the seasons symbolically represent different times in my life. I don't know if that's because my body has gotten sort of linked up with living in this kind of environment for the vast majority of my life. Or if I just tell myself that I change with the seasons and I really don't. But I'm assuming if you asked other people, in fact, I know if you asked other people, people I spend time around and so on, they would definitely argue that I'm a much different person in the colder months, as I think many of us are. And I like that things slow down. And I like that we're forced to think and forced to deal with 14 hours of darkness. 16 hours, I guess, at its peak. I'm not quite sure. It seems like it's dark forever now. I get up in the morning and it's dark and by the time I'm eating dinner at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, it's dark. But it forces you to sit back and to think about things. You can't constantly be in motion in the cold months. And I like that it forces people or allows people an opportunity, creates a space for people to reflect. 
not only on their lives, but also on what's happening in the world, how their lives are are interconnected with how our lives are interconnected with what's happening around the world at any given time. And if you don't take time to appreciate those kinds of things, if you don't take time to step back from this very rushed reality, you know, there's times when I'm sitting on the internet talking to someone on Facebook Messenger, sometimes several people. So that in and of itself, think about that for a second. You're trying to have a conversation with several people. Of course, because you can't give any of those people your undivided attention, most of those conversations, I would argue, are pretty much half-ass conversations instead of being the real kinds of conversations that you would want to have with people. So you're on the Internet, or I'm on the Internet, talking to three or four different people on Facebook Messenger. My phone's buzzing. That could either mean someone's FaceTiming me, messaging me, or calling me. Calling me is quite rare here where I live because I have bad reception. Then, while you're, I'm talking to people, possibly on the phone, responding to a text message, responding to several Facebook messages checking my email at the same time that there could be someone who wants to Skype. And I try and think about these things. I, I know it's hard. I mean, some people have extremely social and or demanding jobs, passions. And I can understand that. For a friend who, say, is a movie producer and they are trying to finish a documentary film, I can understand that kind of a fast-paced lifestyle, at least at times. And I think it would probably be positive for them to take some time off as well or take some time away or to slow down. But half of my... So half of my passion or passions are quite social, including and in primarily political activism, being engaged as an activist and occasionally as an organizer and helping organizers. All of that requires a certain level of sociability. You have to be able to bullshit with people. You have to be able to talk with people, sit down with them, share a cup of coffee, have a cigarette, drink a beer, whatever it is, have lunch, stand somewhere that could very well be a very awkward place in a very awkward position and yet still hold a conversation with someone who you might not agree with much or you might not agree on much with. Yet you still have to do the work because that's what political activism and political organizing is all about. But you have to be quite social to do that. And I grew up, I think, quite the social person. I would say I was a social butterfly, to use a pretty cliche term. But nonetheless, I talked to everybody. I had tons of friends as in elementary school. I had tons of friends in middle school. I had friends I still have today, as a matter of fact. I had friends in high school, plenty of them. 
and great ones, not this sort of super, you know, I talk to people. Here's an interesting thing. At each stage of my life, I've spoken to people about friendship. And more often than not, our experiences are drastically different. So when I got to boot camp in the Marine Corps, I remember talking with people and people saying, yeah, I don't really talk to many people in high school. I thought, man, I have lifelong friends from high school, people I would give my life for, people I would give every last penny I have, every last piece of clothing to use more cliche terms. But nonetheless, I, I, I feel that way. I think my friends know that I feel that way about them. And so when I was in the military, people used to often say to me, Vince, are you really still in contact with people from the high school or people you went to high school with? And I'd say, yeah, I talk to them regularly. In fact, I would go home on leave and specifically spend time with them over my family and my partner at the time who wasn't very happy with me. <laughs> about coming home the limited amount of times that you're able to come home in the military and spending those long weekends or spending your leave days that you can accumulate on a yearly basis fucking off with your friends down at college but for me that was a great growing experience it was when I got exposed to different ideas about political activism progressive politics Counterculture, reading Hunter S. Thompson or Kurt Vonnegut, William S. Burroughs. Those kinds of things really opened my mind. They were a period for me, and those were people I knew and know today who have had a profound impact on my life and continue to, to some extent. Maybe less than before, but still. So in the Marine Corps, I remember people saying when we were deployed overseas, oh my God, I can't believe you're getting care packages and gifts and books and presents from people you went to high school with. This is amazing. There were people I was deployed overseas with who would have been happy to get half as much stuff from their parents as I did from friends from high school. And it wasn't as though before that period I didn't know that I was lucky. I was very fortunate to have this kind of a support network, this kind of a a foundation, social, cultural, family foundation that has helped me along the way, continues to help me today. But then I remember when I left the Marine Corps and I joined the anti-war movement and people who I met in the anti-war movement, particularly anti-war veterans from Veterans for Peace or Iraq Veterans Against the War. And they would say, who is, you know, who's this guy, for instance, my friend Sergio, who eventually joined Iraq Veterans Against the War as well and whom I just traveled to Standing Rock with, someone I met 14 years ago in the Marine Corps. We were in the same platoon. And 
people would ask, who is this guy? Oh, you guys served in the same, same unit? No, we served in the same platoon. And at one time, I think we had at least four or five maybe people from our platoon, 40 to 50 people, give or take, depending on the circumstances, the time frame, etc. But nonetheless, let's say 45 people in a platoon. Well, five of those people eventually joined Iraq Veterans Against the War. I don't know if they're still members or not, but nonetheless, my point is that I made tremendous relationships and formed amazing bonds with people in the military. Now, even if that's a handful of people, even if that's, say, two or three people, that's quite rare. For, especially, well, let me clarify. It's quite rare for veterans who come home with a different perspective than, say, the, the one that the mainstream pushes. Now, I, throughout the years, have met tons of veterans with all kinds of different perspectives. Like any other community or group, it's not a homogenous entity. There are, for as many different veterans as there are, there's that many different perspectives, but there are tendencies. And, you know, I mean, it was pretty clear that a lot of the people we served with at least years ago did not want to question at least publicly and maybe even within their friends and family they didn't want to question the war they surely didn't want to reflect on and talk about or question their experiences in the war as i've said before it's a lot easier to it's a lot easier to come home and to tell your friends and family, yes, it was worth it. Tell yourself, yes, it was worth it. My friends were killed. I had to kill people. I had to do terrible things. But at the end of the day, it was a worthy cause. It was a just cause, and it was worth it. I have to tell myself that. I can understand veterans who are coming from that perspective. I can't say I respect it, but I understand it. And so when I was in Iraq Veterans Against the War and in the anti-war movement, people couldn't believe that I would bring friends, childhood friends, to events, my parents, people I was in the same platoon with, people who continue to support me, and people who are active in their own right today, which is, I mean, the, the most inspirational thing that you can, I think, be a part of or that you can engender for folks is a sense of wanting to be engaged. So it's amazing to see people I know, uh, people from the platoon, now engaged and active. In the same, in different places I worked, I once worked at a bar, restaurant slash bar. But I made lifelong friends from that experience. And the same at the university that I attended. There are people I met there mostly professors, because it was a commuter college and, you know, as a community college and as a commuter college, it's not much time to spend with people who are also going to school there. You know, people have jobs and families. They come, they go, take night classes here and there when they can. We all know the story. So, but, not, you know, regardless, I made 
tremendous friendships there. And so when I think about going to Standing Rock, and I think about love, and here I agree with both Che Guevara and Derek Jensen, that love doesn't imply pacifism. You can love something. You can love, you can be of love without being a pacifist and without being a hopeless romantic. And not that either of those things are wrong, but that's just not my thing. But a love for the planet, a love for family, for justice, for culture, for civil rights, love for things that live, not things that are dead, like money or materials or social status. You know, I love for things that matter. That love, my experience, has been the driving force between not only being able to maintain relationships, close, meaningful relationships, relationships that are at times difficult, relationships that grow, that bend and break, that can be reformed and re-altered. Those kinds of relationships have made me the person that I am today. And those are the kinds of things that I think people in general, but also activists, people who are out there in the world trying to make a difference for the right reasons, I think we have to stress that concept of love. I think we have to talk about what it is or what are the things that we love and what that love means for us. I didn't get involved with activism because I had a grudge or a vendetta. Was I angry? Of course I was angry. I was 22 years old and realized I had been used and had hurt people and killed people and participated in this terrible war for all of the wrong reasons. I, I realized that prior to being 22 years old, but at 22 when I was out of the Marine Corps, that's when I was involved, became first involved with activism. But the primary driving force behind that activism wasn't hatred or anger. It might have been the fuel. You know, so maybe being angry, having a little hatred in my heart, maybe that was the fuel, maybe that was the gasoline, but the actual vehicle was love. And it was a love for truth a love for justice, a love for a people, namely the Iraqi people, who I felt indebted to, and still do to some degree. 
that level of love was what drove me. It's what drives me today. It's what drove us to go to Standing Rock. And so to tie these themes together, you know, I think of friendship, I think of love, I think of activism. Well, the crew that I went to Standing Rock with, my friend Tony, who's a childhood friend. I mean, this is someone I've known since I was 10 years old. We've known each other for 22 years. My friend Sergio, who we've known each other for now 14, 15 years, met each other in the Marine Corps, remained best friends, went and uh, participated in all of this great work now. I mean, I think of people although he wasn't with us, but my friend Roberto as well. I mean, this is someone, my friend Kim, who was just here the other night. I mean, these are people I've known for now going on 10 years. And our relationship continues to grow. And, you know, so some of these people like Tony, I met through my childhood, Sergio, through the Marine Corps, through these major portions in my life, major periods in anyone's life. And then my friend Vince sort of a long-lost comrade from the IVAW days, someone I haven't seen since I think we estimated 2008 or 2009, so eight or nine years. I put out the call on social media. The next thing I know, Vince is sending me a message. He says, hell yes, I'd love to go to Standing Rock. So those were the three people in the car with me making four, someone I've known for 22 years, someone I've known for through, through my childhood experiences, meeting in the small town of Chesterton, Indiana, where my parents moved from Chicago. So in a, our small town of, I don't know what it is now, probably 10,000 back then, 8,000 maybe now, thirteen or 14,000 people who live there, It was amazing tying all of that together. And then Sergio from the Marine Corps, 14 years. I've known him 15 years. He's there. My friend Vince, somebody I haven't talked to for years, somebody we met, whom I met through activist work, a former, former uh, Army combat engineer and medic. He was there, and that was our car, you know. And people getting to know each other and people, you know, talking with each other. Those are the great, I mean, one of the, what, one of the great things about road trips, really, is this, you're, you're there. And there's, there's not much to distract you. I mean, sure, every now and then you're going to get on your phone, check some things. We probably were doing it more than we should just because of the circumstances and you know, we wanted to get an idea of what was happening out in the, the world and how people were framing the Army Corps of Engineers' decision to not grant the permit for the easement for the Dakota Access Pipeline going through, I think, it was technically uh, Cannonball River or underneath. I'm, I get so confused with all the names, I apologize. Well, and still trying to piece together all of those the last week. But I would argue, again, bringing this back to the conversation about love, that love drove me 
to Standing Rock. It was for a love of the planet, number one, and love of indigenous people. And love for my brothers and sisters in the military who, and formerly of the military, who decided to put it on the line, who decided, you know what? I almost died and I had to fight and I had to do these terrible things for no good reason. Well, we know why, actually, money and profit and power and so on. The least I can do here is to give my life for something that matters, if indeed it comes to that. Now, I'm not encouraging martyrdom. I'm not arguing that this maybe is the best thing that veterans or people of good conscience can do with themselves. But in particular moments, it is. And I think that was a particular moment, a circumstance, a period in history where if indeed veterans were called upon, the people who were in attendance, the vast majority of whom, to put their lives on the line to protect the activists and water protectors primarily led by local native community. Yes, those veterans would have put their life on the line, myself included. And as I mentioned in the previous podcast that we did uh, live from Standing Rock, that might sound hyperbolic to some folks, but in reality, it's actually... I think quite a humble statement. I mean, one of the weird things about this culture is that we're all going to die. We all know that. Everybody knows that. But we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. And we surely don't want to come to terms with what it would mean to actually talk and think about it. So if you come to the conclusion, as I have years ago, that, okay, and maybe some dream world and maybe some alternate reality or universe or parallel universe or whatever is going on, maybe there's a way to continue this existence as you know it or as you think you know it or as your mind thinks it, it knows it. That is fun to entertain. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I think anyone who would say otherwise is lying. It's quite fun to entertain. But it's not reality. I mean, the reality is, at least as far as we know, this is the only shot we have at this. We have one shot at it. And the question that all of us has to ask, have to ask ourselves is primarily, what do we want to do with this time? If your concept of life on this planet includes or is limited to working a job, having a partner, creating some kids, hopefully having some downtime, and then dying. 
I would argue that you need to expand your concept of life and that you need to really sit down and think what it means to be a creature that has evolved, who has evolved for hundreds of thousands of years to reach millions and, of course, so on. To reach where we are today and to put that into perspective. I don't think there's anything hippy-dippy about that. I don't think there's anything out there, quote-unquote, about that. I think it's probably one of the most useful things we can do as a species right now. Especially those of us living in this highly uh, technologically advanced society or societies who move at this rapid pace. And of course, all of the nonsense concerns that come with that which include bills and this and this and this and this and so on. All of the stuff that drives us crazy. We need to take time away from that. And the more we can... I think disconnect from that the more we can question what this life is all about and what we can do about the things that matter it seems and it always always seems so easy to me for people living in the industrialized world to make easy, I mean, it's so easy when you can turn on your water, right? It's so easy to not think about things, not think about the damage that maybe even that process is causing. But it's so easy when you don't have to think about, uh, and this is only in portions of the United States, of course, we know it's quite different in other neighborhoods and regions. But the very basic things that we take for granted here and symbolized really in the struggle at Standing Rock. I mean, what we're talking about or what the, the rallying cry was, a living planet and fresh water. Fighting battles over fresh drinking water. And what's more important, fresh drinking water for hundreds if not thousands of years to come or trying to extract and squeeze out the last of the crude oil that we can find with the available technology that we have. So this love is what drove me to go to Standing Rock. I would argue that's what drove most people. And I would also argue probably a sense of duty. I don't say that in this traditional uh, sort of ridiculous way that we talk about people in the United States having this call to duty, uh, being the hard-bodied hero, as my friend Samantha Castro would point out. You know, so there's this duty for men to go save people, especially women. No, I didn't feel that. 
but I did feel a calling. I felt that if indeed the most marginalized in American society can stand up and fight, and if there were going to be thousands of veterans who went, and if I've, obviously I'm a veteran, and if I've been involved with the things I've been involved with over the years, it's the least that we could do. Now, we all know what's happened since then. If not, you can check out last week's podcast. But the only reflections that I will add, well, and here maybe I should pull up, there was something released by the Red Warrior Society from the Red Warrior Camp. And I think I should read this. They released this yesterday. I talked of my criticisms and so on, expressed where I was coming from about what took place at Standing Rock on last week's program. So give me a sec. I'm going to have a drink real quick, and then I'm, we're going to – I want to read you some of what the Red Warrior Society put out yesterday. Okay. So this was released yesterday at around midnight. December 2016 official Red Warrior Camp communique. Red Warrior Camp has left the lands and waters of Oketi Sakowan. Sakowan, the major camp within the Standing Rock area. There's also, oh, what was the other one called? Sacred Stone, and I want to say maybe one more, but I could be mistaken. There were sort of smaller camps within camps. So grassroots leaders led... Donna, Tamakawastuin, Alred, and Chase Iron Eyes from Standing Rock have spoken and have made it abundantly clear that they want those equipped for the harsh North Dakota winter to stay and help stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. Due to our current circumstance, it is with great regret that we as Red Warrior cannot accept this heartfelt invitation. That is not to say that we do not support this effort. In fact, is quite the opposite. We send our warrior salute and war cry to the universe and to the ancestors that their needs are met and they receive the love and support they need in the fight for clean water. Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's chairman, Dave Archambault, has made it abundantly clear that a diversity of tactics in the battle against the Dakota Access Pipeline is not respected, nor is it wanted. We have this to say. Without the courage and the actions of those who actually put their minds, bodies, and spirits in harm's way, the pipeline would be built today. Without the warriors who locked down and took measures to put a stop to the work on Dakota Access Pipeline, the black blood would have already been flowing under the Missouri River. The encampment itself would not even be there right now. The hard work of the warriors has cost ETP millions I think that's en Enbridge Trans-Pacific Millions. We have struck the black snake a deadly blow. The peace policing that was led by people who were for the most part self-appointed used ceremony and spirituality as a weapon against us. They too have made it abundantly clear by their actions and by their constant slinging of arrows that they are not ready to embrace a worldview that upholds decolonization and revolution. After months of active duty as warriors standing for sacred water and protecting sacred ground, 
and due to the current political climate here at Standing Rock, Red Warrior Camp is evolving. We are taking time to recoup and expand on who we are as a society. We have worked very hard here for many months and must be mindful of ourselves and our families and also to self-care. We must also be true to who we are and as indigenous land defenders, we are committed fully to our roles as warriors and have worked too hard to allow any kind of outside threat to compromise our duties and movement. Red Warrior Society is now dedicating ourselves to building a culture and community of resistance at every level. We were called here by the people to help fight a battle that is far from our home territories for many of us. We have sacrificed much, facing felony charges, lasting bodily harm, and long-lasting effects of battle fatigue. We have laid it all on the line for the water. Our time here has come to an end. We have done all we can in this fight, and we are honored to have stood beside not only the tribe, but to each and every one of you from all nations all over the planet who came here with the fire of resistance in your bellies and fought hard and long beside us. We offer our sincerest thanks to all who have bettered us at a camp. We are grateful to those who have made our lives here easier and who have sheltered us and fed us. To all those who came forward and offered their help in the form of finances and the sweat from their bodies, we salute you. Your help, love, and offerings have given us the heart to be here for so many months, and it has held us up when we were weary from battle and felt discouraged. Without this, we would not be in any place to carry on our battle to other front lines, and we would not be as strong as we are today. There are no words in this colonized language to express the deep feelings we carry with us for this movement that has arisen from this historic time, Water is Life. One of the lessons we have learned that has inspired us is the very real need for a mobile resistance movement that is ready and willing to dismantle the capitalist regime that is dis destroying our planet. The mobilization of resistance is key to shattering the oppressive, illegal military occupation of the so-called Americas. For too long, we have lived with broken treaties, genocide, racism, and colonization. In order to best honor our ancestors and the future generations we are living, our principles by forming a warrior society rooted in combating the indoctrination of our minds, bodies, and spirits. We do not need Standing Rock to exist, but we did, however, require it to put us all in the same place at the same time. We realize now that all we need is each other. Our Red Warrior family has undertaken the responsibility and role to uphold not only Mother Earth, but indigenous rights. It is with this duty in mind that we must rise up and move on. We are unapologetically indigenous. We embody resistance. Everything we do, from eating rubber bullets for breakfast to holding our front line, has been done in a manner that is nothing but spiritual. We have great respect and love for prayer and ceremony and understand its place in, t in the time of battle. Many of our people are spiritual leaders in their own right and in their own territories. We are the answered prayers of our ancestors embodied in the flesh. We are given a sacred duty to ensure the continuity of our people's way of life on this planet and to protect the future for those spirits yet to come. This is a call to action to which no man or woman can or should deny in this precarious times. 
The time has come for us as Red Warrior to take a leap of faith in our ancestors and carve our space for ourselves to exist as free from colonialism as we can. We recognize and acknowledge our role. We have been brought together by the struggle for clean water here at the Och- at the Standing Rock camps, and we are moving on as a group. Our time together here has been a journey and teaching experience for us all. It has honed our vision and our mission as a whole, and we are looking seven generations forward. Focused on action to defend our mother, we are moving forward to ensure we are there, we are needed, and where we can be effective. Our people and our battles are all over Turtle Island. We have worked hard together to create a warrior society that is upholding not only Mother Earth, but also each other. We are Mother Earth's army. We cannot stay and fight a battle for land and water is so heavily invested in neocolonialism. We are grateful to the grassroots people who have supported us while we have been here. It is not easy to say goodbye. We are deeply tied to the struggle and are not abandoning our post. This fight is not over yet. The pipeline is still being built. Energy transfer partners will push this pipeline through unless there is a diversity of tactics that include direct action And no court ruling or legal maneuvering will prevent that from happening alone. And the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe is heavily engaged in praying away a pipeline without action. This is in direct opposition to who we are as warriors. We are in a war to fight the greedy corporate whores who are now pimping out our Mother Earth for blood money, and we say no more. Enough is enough. For over 500 years, we have been brutalized and robbed. We are not victims looking for... Secrease, we are warriors fighting for our lives and our future. We cannot afford to allow our own corrupt leaders aid and abet this process. Too many of our people are working for industry. Too many of our people are selling out. We must remember the warrior blood runs through our veins. We do a great disservice to ourselves and the people when we allow the values of white supremacist society to overshadow the knowledge of what it means to be a true human being. Mother Earth is hurting and she's calling for backup. The warriors rise up and fight back. In the spirit of resistance, the Red Warrior Society. And that, folks, in a lot of ways, sums it up. There are people and movements being created today that understand the gravity of the situation that we face. And we need a vision and we need organization and we need the sort of activism and the sort of actions, civil disobedience, direct actions, and so on, that could truly make us effective. And that's two challenges. That's number one, to be as effective as we can be with the current in the current climate and with our current resources and numbers. But then the second challenge, I think, and I think this challenge remains, and I think this is something that a lot of people who are activists and so on have a hard time talking about because it can often bring up 
the unfortunate realities about the way that we organize or the things that we expect from people or the cultures we've created. But that's how to expand the base of people who are sympathetic to these causes and who will get engaged with these causes, who will actively help with the various causes that people are involved with. And in order for that to happen, I think you have to create a left-wing activism that isn't boring. You have to have an alternative culture. You know, I see, my God, I get emails from people in this crazy shit from people about uh, progressive consumerism type of stuff. Like this left-wing, like we're going to, you know, I mean, it. it's mind-boggling. It's a lack of imagination is what it is. It's akin to the people who continue to say that capitalism is the end of the story or the end of history. That there will be no other economic system and that essentially any future economic systems or variations will be simply alternatives of or variations of the existing capitalist order. But, you know, a cult of personality predates capitalism. Destruction of the earth predates capitalism. The ethnic and religious sectarianism and fighting and so on, this predates capitalism. Patriarchy predates capitalism power in concentrated forms, whether that be through family power, whether that be through a mafia or a gang or a cartel, or whether that be through a government or a private entity or a church. That kind of power and organized violence predates capitalism. So obviously what we're facing, yes, of course, the current form is called capitalism. But as many philosophers and economic theorists would say, it's a far cry from what Adam Smith had in mind. That aside, the issues we face are much deeper than these simple terms like, oh, we're, you know, it's capitalism is the problem. Well... Some people argue industrial civilization is the problem. Some people argue civilization itself is the problem. I think it's important for all of us to be willing to step back and re-examine and question what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. If this work, if you don't get a feeling in your the pit of your stomach, if you don't have a fire burning in your belly when you wake up to want to talk about, write about, create, think about, read about, and learn what's happening in the world and how we can make a difference, or how you individually can start to make a difference and then collectively get together with people to make an even more profound difference, there's a problem. And the problem isn't society. 
And the problem isn't the movements that are out there or the organizations as flawed as they may be. The problem is within you. The problem is we are raising people without a lack or with a lack of values and with a lack of what it means to be a civically engaged citizen in this culture, in this society. That's the problem. The problem is we are unwilling to have the difficult conversations with our friends and family, not just about silly shit like consumerism, which should outright be opposed, abandoned, critiqued, looked down upon by anyone who is of good conscience. Obviously, this time of the season is a perfect example. And since I didn't get to talk about why I actually love the holidays, we can talk about the holidays and the bastardization of the holidays under a capitalist system where consumerism is what it now means to have uh, a Christmas or a, you know, Hanukkah or so on. This is crazy to me. So we have people who want to think, so we have people who think that they're operating outside of the box because, say, they have more critical politics than a Hillary Clinton supporter. But they still want to play these games that the existing dominant institutions and social arrangements in society have told us that we should play. Like this game of consumerism during the holidays. We need to stop. <laughs> it's like alcoholism, folks. If you really want to deal with it, you have to stop. It's not going to be, oh, uh, well, I just won't, I'll just drink on the weekends. That's the same bullshit with the shopping stuff during the holidays. Well, I'm just going to shop at progressive outlets. Are you crazy? Just stop. Stop. I know that this is all that people know how to do for the most part. People don't know what else to do with themselves. It's funny. I mean, my friend Sergio and I were just talking. You go halfway around the world, and what are people doing? Eating at cafes and going shopping. Now, I'm sure, of course, that's not everyone. People who don't have the money, people who don't have the access, people who, like me and others, are considered curmudgeons because we don't want to participate in that kind of goofy, plasticized, oppressive, ridiculous culture of running around with shopping bags at shopping malls and sipping on lattes and looking for deals and standing in line with hundreds of other assholes who are looking for the same deals. I mean, are you crazy? So the other day you want to know about, you want to talk about, I'm um, way off topic here, but not really. This, is, this sticks with what we're essentially what we're saying. The other day, I totally forget. This will tell you how much of a, an airhead I am. I don't, I didn't even know what day it was. So there's a outlet mall by my house. People go close to my house. People go to this mall from all over the region. You'll see plates from Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio. It's quite it's actually quite ridiculous. So people go to this mall um Throughout the the season, it's it's nuts. So I'm pulling up and had to not really doing much. My dad says he needs a vest, so I go into one of the stores to look for a vest, like cold weather, maybe like a down vest or something really nice to keep him warm. He's 
going on 70 years old and he's still out in the cold doing stuff in his yard even though we tell him not to and so on. Anyway, I'm sure people out there can relate. So I go to get him this vest and I walk in the store and there are well over 100 people standing in line. And there's people blowing through the aisles, walking past people, bumping into people, ignoring the store clerks. Uh, and here you have these store clerks, these retail workers, many of whom are young, you know, I'd say college-aged high school kids, but then also the older older folks and, um, you know, making 7 bucks an hour here in India. I'm probably making eight twenty-five an hour. It's a shame. I mean, it's, 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 it's not only a shame, it's a sickness. I mean, it makes me sick. It made me sad. It made me really depressed to just even be in the goddamn store. I mean, I get it, you know, it's like, it's, you, so here's the thing. For me, you just buy the shit that you need. That's it. That's it. You don't need new shirts every year. You don't need new pants every year. If you're chasing that kind of weird... And so this is, to me, what the hipster culture has done as well. It's like trying to be counterculture, but you're still doing the same shit. So just because you're not going to a name brand store and you're going to the thrift store every weekend to go buy shit, yeah, it's goofy. It's a sickness. You know, keeping up with different fashion styles, keeping up with this, what you know paying attention to what GQ magazine or men's health fitness or whatever the hell it is people are paying attention to. I'm reminded of these things when I go to the airport and travel, which I fortunately haven't had to do lately, but I will have to do in the next few months. It's crazy keeping up with all of this. And it's created a, a neurosis. It's, you know, it's a problem society-wide. People can't even sit down and talk with each other even about the most sort of middle-of-the-road substantive issues, let alone the most pressing issues of our time. So I didn't get to talk about why I love the holidays. I didn't really get to talk about why I think left-wing activism these days is boring, and I kind of got to some of that. But we need people to be creative. I mean, I tell people all the time, write articles, Make an album, pick up an instrument, uh, draw something, paint something. The more people who are out there generating uh, alternative culture, the better. I just think that we're really missing out on a lot of really good and interesting things that people have to say because people are so worried about what society is going to think. Or they're so worried about what other people are going to say, if they're going to like their stuff, if they're going to be... You know, they're not good enough or they're not pretty enough or it's not, you know, whatever the deal is. I, I just I just want people to be more confident. But people also have to take themselves seriously. You know, so you can't just come out, whatever, to a meeting and say some crazy shit because you just read a couple of articles. I mean, pick up some books. If you're going to take this stuff seriously, if you're going to take these issues seriously, it's like anything in life. Do it the right way. I mean, I go to the YMCA all the time. I see these people. They're on the ellipticals, you know. They're reading books. They're chilling out. They're watching TV programs, barely make, breaking a sweat. Why even bother? Why even bother? Because you, so you can go home and tell yourself, hey, at least I went to the gym today. No. Do it the right way. Push yourself. 
push yourself as far as you can go for the day. That's not just some jock uh, thing to say about going to the gym. That's anything. It's like picking up a book. Oh, I read a couple pages today or a chapter. I've got this neat book that I'm into. No, is that book, are you thinking about that book? Are you? Do you want to write about that book? Do you... Are you applying what you're reading and thinking about in that book to your day-to-day life? Can you, you know, barely put it down? I mean, that's the kind of book you want to be engaged with. That's the kind of stuff you want to be doing. That's the same with politics. If you're just showing up to the meeting because it's the thing to do or because you're making yourself feel better, don't bother. Don't bother. Come out only if you're passionate enough to want to put in the time and the effort necessary to create a more vibrant place, more vibrant movements, more vibrant organizations for people to plug into. You know, we're dealing with the most powerful institutions and the most powerful entities that have ever existed in the history of the world. We need to put these things into perspective. We need to realize we are living in potentially the most interesting, fascinating, scary times that have ever existed. So let's act accordingly. You're listening to Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find us every Monday at 2 p.m. Organic. Organic.